Hey, so I have a question for you. We're going to start with a question. How many of you are either married or room with a complainer? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> you might get in trouble. You know, complaining really is a killjoy. Uh, it makes us and it makes people around us absolutely miserable. Uh, it, complaining is something that's very natural to us in our natural state. It's something the flesh is, is really, really good at. Uh, when, when you think about it, even culturally around, around us, it's so natural to be negative. Anybody ever watch the news? How much of the news is negative? I mean, it's just like a gunshot, just like, almost like a, like a machine gun going off, just negative, 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 negative. Maybe at the very end they might have one, one thing. So it's part of our nature. It's part of our condition. Some people are so negative. I think, I think their blood type is negative as, as well. I don't know if there's a correlation there or not. Probably not. But uh, the Apostle Paul is going to actually talk about there are some people in the church that were disrupting the unity of the church. Paul talks a lot about Unity starts in chapter 1, talking about how what a wonderful thing to be in partnership with the gospel. This, this is awesome, being in partnership with the gospel uh, together, because God is starting this work in your life, and he's going he's gonna to help it come to fruition. So in these first couple of chapters, he talks about this process called sanctification. He wants the gospel to, to explode, so to speak. And so he says, if, if the gospel is going to explode, more than anything, I, I just want Jesus to be honored. I want Jesus to be magnified. I want Jesus to be glorified in all that I do. So then he says in verse 27, So let your manner of life or let your citizenship of heaven really be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Boy, there's just this appeal. It's got to be something intrinsic. It's got to be something real internally. And so then he gives us the example of Jesus himself. If we could just be like Jesus and, and empty ourselves and consider other people as being more important than self, this would be so awesome. So let your manner of life be worthy of the, of the gospel, but count others as more important than yourself. And then he gets to this particular uh, passage, and uh, what I'd like for us to do is to stand up and honor God's word by reading it uh, together. Would you stand with me? Or, yeah, I'm already standing, so stand, yeah, stand with me. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. For if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you so much. Go ahead and have a seat. Basically, Paul is saying if, the, if we're going to proclaim the gospel, if the gospel is going to go out, uh, we have got to be very different from the world. But what we've got to do is we've got to, and I love this phrase, we've got to shine out like stars. And it's such a beautiful expression because 
uh, it's used of God a couple of different, two or three different times in the Old Testament, how, how his face can shine upon you. The children of Israel were looked at as stars because they were to be uh, the ambassadors for the Lord as they go to all the nations. So it's a beautiful, con- beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple going out making a difference for the, for the, for the gospel. So if the world is going to have a chance of being fulfilled, if the world's going to have a chance of, of really experiencing joy and happiness, it must not only hear the gospel from us, it also must observe the gospel as we live it out in our lives. So that's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, just let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Honor Christ, exalt Christ, magnify Christ in your body. Um, but four times in this passage so far, he's appealed for unity. And you go, huh, there, there must be an issue here. He says you need to be of one heart. You need to be of one mind, one soul. Later, you've got to be one, one accord because there were some divisions that were happening and that was sort of taking away from the power, the impact of the gospel. And so, so far, we've seen that there can be three disruptors of unity. There were, there's a disruptor of external circumstances, and Paul has talked about the external circumstances. It could be difficult relationships, and we see that throughout Philippians. And also here, in the passage we're going to look at today, there's the disruptor of bad attitudes. So he calls us to unity, unity around the gospel. So there's this call for unity of trust and obedience and allowing God to work in our lives, to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verses 12 to 13, this can be a couple of verses that could be misconstrued, and some people have taken it out of context, so hopefully I'll be able to put it in context so you'll understand it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So basically what he's saying is it's, it's not talking about, I want to tell you what it is saying, what it's not saying. It's not talking about you need to work for your salvation. Go, oh, I, I thought it was by grace. You know, now he's saying you, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But first of all, it's a plural you. He, so he's talking to the church. You guys, this needs to be real in your lives. If you will just let the trust God, obey God, let him change your heart, allow the Holy Spirit to work in your lives, and I'm adding to what Paul later says in some of the other epistles, allow the fruit of the Spirit to come out of your life. Um, That is going to empower you, and some of these negative things that are beginning to emerge in the church will begin to be eliminated as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Things like, and he's talked about this, things like selfishness and complaining and dissension and grumbling and fault-finding and questioning, those things will be put to rest and unity will be restored and it will allow you as a church to shine out as a star in a very wicked and perverse generation. So what it's not saying when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he is not referring to the moment that we, by grace, are justified and we receive him as our substitute punishment, as our substitute perfection, the moment we, by grace, receive Jesus, his death counts as our death. His condemnation counts as our condemnation. His righteousness counts as our righteousness. And God becomes 100% 
irrevocably for us at the very instant of salvation. This is totally apart from works, Romans 3.28, and there's forevermore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So Paul is not saying that we need to work and do things to earn God's favor or God's salvation. Because a lot of times when we use the word salvation, we're just thinking about that moment of justification. But this really, oh, or, uh, let, me, let me do this. Let me just sort of simplify it. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, really, the working out part is not the cause, but it's the result of God working in us. So let me define simply maybe a simple, it's, it's not a technical, or a theologian would probably cringe because I've oversimplified it, but I want to just sort of summarize the difference between salvation and sanctification because what he's talking about, especially in the end of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2, is sanctification. It's the main part. It, it's the, the crux of Philippians is, is right here through chapter 2. So salvation would say it's not what we do, it's what has been done for us. That would be salvation. And then sanctification, simple, I know it's simple, but sanctification would be it's what we do in light of what God has done in us. And that's what he wants to do here. If we're honest, though, I think uh, a lot of times what we do is exactly what some of the Philippian uh, people in the church were doing. I mean, they understood about salvation. They were understanding that God did a work in their lives. But instead of letting God work in their lives, working out to will and to do for his good pleasure, they were sort of wanting, no, I, I want to get control. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And, and I'm, I'm going to maybe call the shots here. And so Paul was saying, no, it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He knows what to do. He knows how to do it. And that's why he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin to work in our lives where we can actually bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so we need to believe it. We need to submit to the Holy Spirit. We need to obey the leading by the Word and by the Spirit and be empowered by the Spirit. And I think the key is these two words that he plugs in here uh, with fear Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And by that, because we go with fear and trembling, but, but 365 times in the Bible it says fear not. What do you mean with fear and trembling? I mean, he, he's actually already said in Philippians chapter 1, without fear, speak the gospel, speak the word, in verse 14, without fear. So now why is he saying let God work in you with fear and trembling? I think what he's saying here is you... You let God work in your lives. Work out your salvation or this sanctification. Let him continue the sanctification process with an attitude of fear and trembling. That is, you run, you running away from your own flesh, running away from yourself. We'll really see this in chapter 3, the first number of verses in chapter 3 where he says, man, it's not my flesh. If anybody wants to count in their flesh, I, I can do it far better than any of you, and you're not going to get anywhere doing that. But no, you run to God, run to God with this reverential awe and trembling that, 
that makes you, that reminds us this earth is not our home, that my manner of life here on earth, it needs to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. More than anything, I want my body to exalt and magnify Christ. So we don't run from God in fear and trembling. We run to God in fear and trembling. And then we see that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure pleasure. And, and this discovery, I think when, when a Christian discovers this, that's why this whole book is salt and peppered with rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. There's joy constantly. When we learn to live this way, uh, then ritual or even adversity, we see that in this book as well. Ritual and adversity turns into an adventure. And the, the secular of life really transforms into the sacred of life. It makes every incident in our experience an opportunity to see God at work, whether that be in our home, whether it be at school, whether it be in our office, whether, whether in the dorm, uh, wherever we are, it allows, it allows God's glory to be displayed. And that's, we'll see it in verse 15, we'll get there. That is what allows us to shine out as stars in a very wicked and perverse generation. So that's the call for unity. Now, what is the cause? What's the problem here, the cause for disunity? And he's saying the, what's behind this disunity, and he constantly is appealing for unity throughout this book, what's causing it are these complaining attitudes. Uh, and I think it's so interesting that immediately after talking about the miracle of God working in us, the very first thing he addresses are complaining spirits. Notice verse 14. Do all things without grumbling, or you could say grumbling. The word could also be translated questioning or disputing. So disputing could be murmuring, Disputing, it could be translated arguing, complaining. So Paul is well aware that there was a lot of grumbling uh, from the children of Israel in the wilderness, and this was precursor to the rebellion. The children uh, murmured about circumstances. They murmured about God's blessing. They murmured and complained about um, God's leadership, Moses and Aaron. And uh, so he uses that word, do all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing. It's the word dialogismos, like we get our word logistics from logismos. It just means separated reasoning. It's referring to a speculative reasoning designed to cause discord. It's designed to cause strife, problems. And that's what Paul is seeing in the church, and he's begging people to get restored in this church. So, you know, I was looking through the Bible, and I thought, boy, and that's really true. You see, you see this throughout the Bible. There, there are many different kinds of, of complainers or disgruntled people that, that uh, murmur and dispute and question. Um, so I just sort of categorize four different types. Uh, on one hand, you've got the whiners, the people that whine, and their, their slogan is, life isn't fair. Um, even, even David, even David, you read it in the Psalms that a lot of times he's a whiner. <laughs> I won't use the kind of psalm that was, but you see him whining, whining, and uh, there are just some people that 
that do that. Uh, in the morning, they get up and they rise and whine rather than rise and shine. You know, they're the ones who get up and instead of saying, uh, good morning, Lord, they say, good Lord, it's morning. You know, <laughs> it's just tough. It's like Eeyore, you know, everything, everything is just, they're whiners. Life just isn't fair. And like the Psalm of Asaph, he begins this way. He says in Psalm 73, have I been wasting my time? Why take all the trouble to be pure? All I get out of this is trouble and woe. And yet uh, Asaph then finally saw at the, at the end of Psalm 73 that life just isn't fair on earth. But then he concludes when he sees it from an eternal perspective, life is always fair in heaven. But the whiner, all they see is earth. And life isn't fair on earth. It's never, it's, it, no, I'm not going to say never, but frequently life isn't fair on earth, but it is going to be fair in heaven. And God's never promised that life would absolutely be fair on earth. And your complaining that life isn't fair will never, ever make you any happier. Nor will your complaining ever change a situation. So there's the whiner. Then there's the martyr. No one appreciates me. And I think of Moses in Numbers 11. Moses said to the Lord, why pick on me to give me the burden of a people like this? I can't carry the nation by myself. I'm skipping a few phrases here and there. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. It'll be a kindness. Let me out of this impossible situation. There are, there are people who are pros at you know, just living in a pity party. You know, when they're sick or when they're under pressure, they absolutely want everybody to know how much under pressure they are. Uh, it's, it's like the hypochondriac who put on his tombstone, you know, after his name, it says, I told you I was sick. You know, that's, that's the martyr. And then there's the cynic, the cynic where the slogan is, nothing is ever going to change. You see that in Ecclesiastes with, with Solomon. Life is useless. You spend your life working and what do you have to show for it? The world stays just the same. What has been done before will be done again. You know, basically, what's the use? Um, why even try? Another one would be the, the perfectionist. Another kind of complainer would be the perfectionist. And their slogan would be, uh, is that the best you can do? Is that all you can do? Now, I'll tell you. Uh, the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter what a person does or how good they do it. It'll never be good enough for the per perfectionist. And I could literally write a book on this person. Unfortunately, it would be an autobiography. They're, they're, I, I'm telling you, I, it used to be a prayer because I would you know, have these perfectionistic tendencies and I would, I caught myself doing this to my kids, having this perfectionistic tendency. And I would be disgruntled with the kids, and I would always, instead of finding what they're doing right, I would see what they do wrong. And uh, all of a sudden, I started to ask people to pray for me, and I would just have them pray, because my prayer request is, I do not want to be my child's worst enemy. I want to be their best friend. I want to be their dad. I want to be their best friend, not their worst enemy. And so help me, God, to begin to see uh, the things they do right, not, not just the things they do wrong. So Proverbs 27, a nagging wife is like water going drip, drip, drip on a rainy day. That's, that's sort of that nagging tendency. Um, but, and I've already stated it, husbands can do the exact same thing. You know, it's like the husband who came home and he told his wife, I am just dog tired. And she said, yeah, that's because you get up and growl all day. 
and we can be the same way for sure. And let me just put it this way. Nothing will destroy the warmth of a home faster than a complaining spirit. Nothing will, nothing will destroy the closeness of a friendship than a complaining spirit. Nothing will destroy the atmosphere in a workplace more than just this complaining spirit. Nothing will destroy, and here's the case here in Philippians, nothing will destroy the unity of a church faster than inappropriate complaining spirits. So let me ask you, do your kids complain? Do they complain about the food, complain about the toys, complain about this, complain about that? If they do, ask yourself, where are they learning this from? Are you teaching them by how you respond to react by complaining. Well, what's the cure for it? Now, I admit, what, what the Bible says here is the, the, the cure for it, look, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You, you need to allow God to begin to work in you this whole sanctification process. It doesn't give a lot of detail at this point. How? Give me some Give me some practical examples of how I can do it. So elsewhere throughout the New and Old Testament, they, they do give, the, the writers do, the Holy Spirit does give some examples of, of ways that God can actually work in your life to help you in this area. So what I want to do is step away from this text just for a second. We'll come right back to it. I'm going to step away just for a second and give you some examples of how God wants to work in your life to willing to work for his good pleasure when you go to him with fear and trembling, allowing by the Holy Spirit's power for him to change your life sanctification. So here's a few. Cure for disunity. Now let me just give you five. There are, there are much more than that. Let me give you five. Number one, you need to admit that it's a problem for you. It has to start there. Whoever conceals, Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I think the hardest step in dealing with a complaining spirit is recognizing it in yourself. I'm telling you that because I am an absolute master at justification and justifying my complaining spirit. You know, I'll just say, I'm not complaining. I'm a realist. Or I'm not complaining. I just have some justified concerns. Hear the rationalization. I do this all the time. Or I'm not complaining. God has given me the gift of discernment. Doesn't that sound spiritual? It's carnal to the core. Or here's another one. This is even more carnal. I'm not complaining. I have a prayer request to share. It's just an excuse to complain. There's nothing in you sometimes that motivates you to pray about it. Look, if you want there to be unity in the church, joy in your lives, if you want to be able to shine out like lights, like stars in a crooked and perverse generation, you have first got to be willing to recognize that it is a problem for you. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm so glad my wife is here, or I'm glad, my, oh, I wish my husband could have been here, or so-and-so needs to hear this message, no, let, let me just say it. I am saying that you must recognize that it's a problem in your life. Not somebody else. 
This is serious. This is far more serious than just a bad habit. This is sin. Complaining is sin. Now, would you turn to the person next to you and tell them, and then the other person can remember, that complaining is sin. I'm serious. Turn to the person next to you. Tell them complaining is sin. It, listen, it is, I want, to, I want to drive it home. It is the sin that kept the Israelites out of the promised land. God destroyed them in the desert because all they did was murmur. Seven different cycles of murmuring, complaining, questioning, disputing. And every time they did it, God gave them another lap around the desert. That's how important this is to God. Because he wants you to shine as a light in this world, in your home, in the world, in the dorm, uh, in your neighborhood. Secondly, accept responsibility. For your own life. Many times complaining is just an attempt to blame other people for what you've done or to, to excuse yourself. All you're wanting to do is really put the focus on somebody else rather than yourself to shift the, shift the focus to them so other people might feel better about me. Proverbs 19, some people ruin themselves by their own stupid mistakes and then they blame the Lord. They just want to shift focus. Listen, you know, it's a, it's a culturally acceptable phrase to say uh, you have freedom of choice. And that's true. You're, you have freedom of choice, there's no doubt about it, but you are never free from the consequences of your choice. I hear people complaining all the time about being in debt. But do I also hear them taking responsibility for their obsessive spending? or unwillingness to save. Yeah, you're free to choose, but you are never free from the consequences of your choice. There are three different types of people in life. They are the accusers. It's your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Accusers. That will that, destroy a marriage, by the way. The accusers. There are the excusers. Oh, I, I'm just a product of my environment. Look how my parents raised me. Look who's in control of the government. It, it, by golly, it, it's Trump's fault. It probably is, but, or it's, it's Pelosi's fault, or it's this person's fault, or it's that person's fault. I'm just a product of my environment. And then there are the choosers, and these are the people who will accept responsibility for their own choices. Thirdly, develop an attitude of gratitude. This is so important. Give thanks in all circumstances. That'll keep you from complaining. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice what it says. Give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say some. It says give thanks in all circumstances. And notice too, give thanks. It doesn't say for the circumstance. Listen, there's some tough things that happen in life. I mean, there's some tough diseases. There, there's some tough falls on ice that break legs. It doesn't say give thanks for it. It says give thanks in it. In it, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
We're going to get to Philippians 4 in a few weeks. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Have you ever thought that complaining, now I want you to listen. If you've tuned out, tune back in. Commercial's over. Have you ever thought that complaining is really a complaint against God? You're really saying, God, you gave me a raw deal and I can do nothing with the circumstances that you've given me, that you've dealt with me. It's really complaining against God. Fourth tip would be to look for, if that's true, if that's true, then fourthly, we need to look for God's hand in circumstances. We need to see God there. And that's 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing. Again, that's Paul's talking about a difficult circumstance. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Listen, joyful, positive people recognize that God is in control of circumstances and that we are convinced that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstance comes our way, that God is good. So complaining, in essence, now I'm really driving it down. It's getting a little more intense here. Complaining really is, in essence, rebellion against God. What, what you're really saying is, if I were God, I would do it differently. So when you complain, you're actually doing three things. Number one, you are questioning the very wisdom of God. Secondly, you're doubting God's care. You're doubting that God is really good and that he doesn't really care for you. And you forget about God's goodness. And you're focusing on what I don't have rather than what God has given to me. You know, the truth of the matter is, I think, and this is very true, often the thing that you find yourself complaining about the most is the very thing that God wants to change in your life. I thought about that this morning. Um, I got up, snowing, three more inches. It's not good morning, Lord. For me, it was good, Lord. It's snowing. <laughs> and you know, I, can, I find myself complaining about the snow. I, I really do. And I thought, oh, God, help me. I've got to preach a message on not complaining. And here, I haven't even, I was going to say get, gotten out of my PJs. I don't wear PJs. I won't tell you what I wear, but I don't wear PJs. I've barely gotten out of bed, and I'm complaining because of the snow. And I'm thinking, no, I am going to refuse to do that. You know, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God sends snow 
calls it, even, even when he forgives us of our sin, whiter than, what's the word he uses? Snow. I mean, it's even a positive example to God, and I'm cursing it. Then God, help me. Help me. I mean, everybody can complain about the snow, but what's the impact of, boy, the snow is so beautiful. What, what a privilege just to even have a shovel or snowblower to take care of it. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, then your life is different. You shine like a light. You shine out like a star because it's so different. Your life is so different. So stop complaining. Start changing. Let, let God, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, you know, work out your own salvation. Go to God with fear and trembling. God, I need your power, your help. It's not going to come from my flesh. You've got to do this within me. Fifthly, practice speaking positively. Replace that negative complaining with positive speaking. And that, that you know, that's what I was sharing earlier about my kids. I, I just found myself being critical, uh, overly critical about my kids and, you know, just wanting perfection. And by golly, they weren't, neither am I, perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I came up with this little saying for myself, and that is, it, it doesn't mean that a dad isn't going to correct their kid. I mean, that's, that's absurd. So, but, but I need to be careful about what I correct and how often I do it. So I thought, for me, hey, okay, I've got to give them five attaboys for every one you jerk. So... And I thought, if I'm going to complain about my kid, I've got to give them five things they're doing right before the one thing, you know, that might need correction. Um, so it says, oh, oh, let me just, I'll make a little side note here. So stop the clock, side note. Uh, don't do me the disservice of saying that what Jeff is saying is that you should never correct somebody. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we are encouraged as brothers and sisters in Christ to go to somebody in love, you know, maybe helping them see something, helping them work through something. So that's Ephesians 4.29. The next verse, hopefully you have it, maybe, 4.29. Let no corrupting talk. That's the key. Good accountability is not corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. See, that, that's the purpose of good accountability. It's not corrupting. It tries to build up, and it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that beautiful? So what are the consequences? That's my little uh, parenthesis out of, directly out of. It's hopefully the application of those verses. But now let's go right back into it. The consequences for unity is that we need to shine out like a star. And he gives these three consequences for being united rather than divided. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a very crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I may not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the three consequences, number one, 
you'll be blameless. You'll be blameless. Uh, in other words, if you stop this, this kind of reasoning and complaining, uh, people aren't going to be able to look at you and just find fault with you. Uh, that's really the word uh, for blameless or above reproach. When you set it aside for the glory of God, you become blameless, you become innocent. That's the second word, innocent, or you could translate it pure. And he says that, that means the word pure could also be looked at as integrity. You'll have innocence, purity, integrity. And then he says, just like, just like in a sacrifice, uh, the sacrifices were to be without blemish. That's what you'll be, without blemish. And then you'll be impactful. The third consequence, imp impactful. You're going to be like, like a, a shining star in, in a world that desperately needs the gospel, a crooked and twisted generation. You'll be able to shine out like a light. I think it's so beautiful, too. When, when Jesus was born, what pointed the way to Jesus? The star, right? That's how God used the star. The star pointed people to Jesus wise men to Jesus. Likewise, that, that's us. If we get to shine out like a star, we're like the star of Bethlehem pointing people uh, to Jesus. That's the consequence there. And uh, I, I think another beautiful thing here too is not only is there impact on the world, impact on your friends, but there's also impact on the lives of those who are pouring their lives into your lives. Uh, and I, I'm part part of the, the little, I don't know if you call them tweets or texts or whatever. You all, you all had a retreat yesterday, right, Wade? And I just heard so many glowing things from the retreat. And when things like that, when good things happen, when people's lives are changed, man, what it does for the people working with you, it, and that's what Paul says. He uses this, this illustration of sacrifice. He says, you're like the libation. You know, yeah, yeah, we're making a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to put on a retreat like this. It's a sacrifice to do a worship service like this. It's, it's a sacrifice. There, there's no doubt about it. And Paul's there in prison. I mean, he's sacrificing. He says, but man, when your lives are changed, it's like the libation of wine poured out upon it. It just is so much joy. It just validates everything God is doing when, you, when your lives are changed. It just, it thrills staff, leadership, pastors, etc. cetera, uh, when we hear stories of life change. I think it's just so interesting, again, that the first thing that Paul talks about after telling us that, that God is working powerfully in, in the midst of our lives, then he talks immediately about complaining. Well, how do you know if God really is at work in your life. This passage says, check your attitude. How do you know if God is really at work in your life? You know what he didn't say? How many times did you go to church? How many verses did you memorize? How many Bible studies did you go to? How much did you give to church? No. How do you know if God's really at work in your life? Check your attitude. What is happening to your heart. Well, let's all stand up. I'll close with prayer. And then we're going to sing a song. Jesus, um, 
we don't want to be complainers or, or negative people. We know it just makes us miserable, everybody around us miserable. It's not good for the unity of the church. It's not good for the gospel. It's not good for the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, Lord, you are so good. You have given us everything needed to radically change us from the inside out. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to trust you, to obey you. And so, Lord, when, when issues and problems come into our lives, I, whether it be problem people or problem circumstances, uh, help us, Lord, to react to them in a very positive way, not to complain about it, uh, but, Lord, use these things as tools to radically transform our lives and to, be a, and to allow them to become uh, witnesses to the people around us for your glory and for your sake. Lord, fill us. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your life. We just need you desperately in order for there to be real change and ultimately change in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.